Turn in your scriptures to Luke. The 21st chapter. We're going to be wrapping up today uh, what we're calling the Foundations series. I started a few weeks ago with baptism. And again, I just want to reiterate if Uh, having heard that sermon, or if you have not yet been baptized, but you profess faith in Jesus Christ, go back and hear that sermon or contact us at the office because we are having a baptism service next week. We're very, very excited about that and what the Lord is doing in all of that and the rejoicing that will happen as we proclaim. Another part of proclaiming our faith in Christ is the Lord's table. So, We struck out a few weeks ago to speak to the ordinances of the church. And we covered baptism, then we started on the Lord's table. And we started with an interactive, kind of a classroom endeavor. And uh, so we're going to finish up part two today of the Lord's table. And just for the sake of time, I can't ask you any questions. I'm so sorry. Uh, we're going to just continue on with where we left off last time. The idea of what is the Lord's table? And part of answering that question is, what isn't the Lord's table? Before we get into the particulars, so to speak, it is so desperately important that I share with you the, the deepest essence of why we participate. When are those moments for you that you're wishing you're on the precipice of maybe even envy of the disciples and their advantage to have actually walked with Christ? And yet Jesus in His response to Thomas said, you believe because you see, but blessed are those who will believe, yet do not see. Jesus was thinking of you in those moments. Now what we know about our relationship with Christ is that number one, it requires faith. That Jesus Himself, through the will of the Father, did all the work that we might have eternal life. Amen? Fantastic. Oh, you guys are awake today? The sun has come out. The Giants won yesterday. Everybody's happy. All right, let's bring it back in. Come on, people, focus. The essence and understanding of our faith and our salvation is so desperately important, but so much of the time, our faith can often be seen as ceremonial. And what do I mean by that? And how appropriate I'm focusing on that idea as we talk about this ceremony. So much of the time we speak about our faith as an event, a step. We talk about it as a singular decision. Well, that's because that was very real. There was a singular moment. But rather than memorialize that moment and it simply being the signing of the contract, so to speak, of faith in Jesus Christ, sometimes we forget about the journey that that embarks us on. 
Sometimes we forget about the promises of Christ. That He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Sometimes we forget that He has promised us the Holy Spirit. That He is an advocate for us with the Father interceding non-stop. And so as we start to open up and explore that spiritual journey for each person who proclaims faith, this most certainly speaks to what we practice in the Lord's table. The challenge is sometimes we in our fallibleness, we tend to over-exemplify or underwhelm things. Because that's who we are. That's who we are. This subject is not without that discretion. And so we want to clarify what are we doing when we do this? If you're fairly new here, we've made a recent shift that we actually participate every week now in the Lord's table. And so we're going to give some instruction today during this time where we talk through what is the process? Why do we do this the way we do it? And what is Christ's expectation? So I take you all there to simply say this. This is a moment. It is a practice. It is that which the Lord gave us that we might engage with Him. How often have you longed for the opportunity to walk with Christ? To be with Christ? And so, some have made this moment more than, it, than Jesus made it. And I'll explain that. But I would share with you that they do so for the very reason I just mentioned. Does that track for you? We so desperately long to walk with Christ, to feel His presence, that we have overstepped what Christ actually said when He instituted this practice and this ordinance. Misapplied desire. Please do not throw the baby out with the what? I'm just wondering, how bad is that bathwater? Everybody wants to throw it out all the time. It's just going constantly. But really, as we set up our, our time in looking in the Scripture and unfolding this beautiful thing that, that Christ has given for us in a very unique way to interact with Him, do you see the beauty in this? This is one of the few things we get to do to really interact corporately with Him. Prayer is another one of those things. And right after service today, 15 on 15. I don't know why I'm doing that. That didn't add up to 15 at all, but I don't have 15 fingers. So 15 minutes after service, we're going to corporately spend time in prayer for 15 minutes. And if you have children, bring them. I can think of no greater thing you can instruct your children in. All right? But just like prayer is a necessity, it feeds the spirit, it feeds the soul, there are reasons why the Lord made this an ordinance. And when we get to the end in a few short moments of, of looking and examining what Jesus instituted, hopefully what we arrive at is not a systematic approach that you could take a test on, 
But hopefully what we arrive at is a clarity of inspiration that feeds your soul. Alright? So let's get to it, shall we? Well, that was inspirational. I asked you a question and you're like, I got nothing there. All right, so 1 Corinthians 3.11 is kind of a key passage, but I want to take you to Luke 21 first. This is the Gospel account of what happens the night that Jesus was betrayed and when He gathered with His brothers. I'm sorry, it's 22. Why did I say 21? So, starting in 22, we see that the day of unleavened bread, the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. It's time to prepare for this. And Jesus says in verse 8, so Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. What is actually happening in this upper room where the Lord's table was instituted? What was it? Last Supper, but it began as what? The Passover meal. Now, with the Passover meal was... What was the significance of the Passover meal? The Passover meal, and, and we heard David talk about this last week as he administered the Lord's table, is that the Hebrew people were given this opportunity by God to use symbols to remind them of His grace, His power, His benevolence, and on and on it goes. And every part of a Passover Seder has significance, symbolic significance. This is what they were gathering for. Do you get the picture? This is what they were doing. We have to bring that out as a highlight when we're asking what is the Lord's table. So he gives them the instruction. Go down into uh, verse 14. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So is he eating the Passover meal or is he observing the Lord's Supper? So far, he's talking about the Passover meal. Okay? And they were fully aware of what the Passover meal was. Does that make sense? There was no ambiguity about it. There was no confusion. But they were about to be thrust into some confusion. He says, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. He's speaking prophetically. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it amongst yourselves. For I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Again, more prophecy, more foreshadowing of what was about to happen. Now he starts to take the significance of what he institutes, the new covenant, and the focal points of the new covenant. Verse 19, and he took, what? Bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is the manna which represents God's provision for you coming out of Egypt. No. Now that's what the passage, in, in certain terms, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, in certain that has thrown me off. If I have predicted in one thing, this is a squirrel moment, folks. If I had predicted that Jesus was coming back in 2021 and we reached 2022, I would be no more shocked than Trey and Fernando sitting on this side of the room. <laughs> I don't know if I can preach right now. 
squirrel. Let's go, focus. So Jesus knows that they understand what bread means, and He starts to change things. And He's saying, take this bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them saying, here it is, this is My body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the what? The new covenant. Oh, he's unraveling the mystery of what he's doing. He's a game changer here, folks. Because the greatest change was about to happen. We were within hours of the greatest change that brings us eternal life. He says what? He says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Have you ever thought about the fact that now when we get into this issue of who does communion, have you ever wrestled with the idea that, by the way, by the time he says whose hand is on the table will betray me, have they already participated in the meal? They have. And yet, who is he serving the Lord's table to? Judas. Why is this important? Because at the very end of today, we're going to talk about open and closed communion. So just, and I don't have time to get into the details of this. Actually, I've never heard it speak, spoken of. I've never heard it taught on. And it came up to me in my studies for this about a month ago. And I don't have a good answer for it. So this is where scholars, theologians, pastors, preachers just duck and run. Okay? So, but I am brave enough to bring up this point, And we'll circle back to it. All right, let's look at, at what, we're, what we're focusing on. When we talk about communion, let's start with this question. We started this two weeks ago. What is the Lord's table? We talked about the Catholic tradition that it's referred to as transubstantiation. Now, I've spent a lot of hours reviewing again what is actually meant by this. This morning, uh, I was on Catholic Answers Radio again and listened to four interviews by quote-unquote the experts. So please hear, I'm not just taking the teaching I've been given, right? And part of the problem with that is it's always going to come with, if there's a spurious teaching that your side doesn't necessarily agree with, it becomes real easy to demonize the other side. So I really encourage you, if you really want to get to the, the essence of the truth of the matter, look at both sides of a matter and look for the credibility, okay? So that's why I'm, I'm listening to Catholic Answers Radio. What was fascinating is, as I have studied this, I've heard three to four to five different opinions. Let me give you the simple stuff. I'll wrestle with the heavier stuff. Let me give you the simple stuff. The idea is this that when the Eucharist is served in the Catholic Church, transubstantiation says that the literal presence of Christ, they call it infusing with grace, changes the bread into the flesh of Christ, changes, right? It transmutes, it's transmitted, it's transformed literally changes into the blood of Christ. Now, when you listen to some of the descriptions that I have heard, 
here is how they will actually speak to this. That they recognize that if you put it under an electronic microscope, these are their quotes, that it comes out still as bread and still comes out as wine. So the explanation is there is that the substance of those elements is actually transmitted. I have no explanation as to what that means. Other than they truly believe that it becomes the flesh, and not in a spiritual sense, but in a literal sense, it becomes the, the flesh, the body of Christ, and the blood. This goes all the way back to individuals in the first century, fathers of the church, Justin Martyr. Um, let me just share with you, just because an individual says that they, it, it, it is this way, and a lot of this comes out of John 6, and when Jesus said, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you have no part of me, right? Uh, a lot of people left him at that point, right? This is a controversial thing. What does God, what does Christ mean when he is saying these things? And so some of the early church fathers themselves held this view, and that's why this view has gone throughout the history of the church. So any questions on the Catholic view of transubstantiation? That's pretty much what you need to know. Okay, we do not hold to that. And I'll explain why. Lutheran consubstantiation was a reaction out of the Reformation that says we don't really believe that the actual elements themselves are completely transformed. That they are the literal presence of Christ and the literal presence of uh, uh, of the bread and the cup coexist okay so that was a reaction against the catholic church out of the lutheran reformation orthodox who would i be to leave out the orthodox process right so as near as i can understand not being orthodox myself the quickest way i can surmise this to you is that they describe it as a mystery they don't necessarily hold to transubstantiation. They don't necessarily hold to consubstantiation. But they want to get it right biblically. And so they're looking at these words of Christ and they're saying, I can't resolve this. And so it is a what? It is a mystery. So when we partake, what we are actually partaking of, something mysteriously, metaphysically happens there that we don't really need to be all that super concerned about. We just need to participate in it and understand there is a mysterious union between ourselves and Christ. Is there anybody that's orthodox in our audience today? Did I get that anywhere close? Yes! yes! Do I get an A, B, or C? <laughs> Fantastic. Fantastic. Okay. Let me get to the one I'm supposed to know about, which is the Protestant Evangelical. We call this a memorial. Historically, this is how it's categorized. This is a memorial style of the Lord's table. The reason we use this word memorial is do this in what? Remembrance. Memorial. Remembrance. Um, that, that the memory of what God did for the nation of Israel through the Passover meal was important enough for him to institute the Seder. Does that make sense? I want you to remember the details of what I did for you. Jesus says the same thing. And he connects 
the, the Passover meal into the Lord's table, and he's borrowing the same process of symbolism, we believe, and saying, use these symbols to remember what? My body, which was given for you, and my blood, which was shed for you. If I remember that, does that bring me into a closer walk in union with Christ? Boy, it's sure better. So these are the four views. Let's move quickly. Again, looking at this idea, let me speak to this in the sense of trying to clear up why we hold strongly to a memorial view. Hebrews 10, 1 and 2, and I may have shared this with you earlier, uh, and Hebrews 9 speaks really well to this as well if you want to do further work. But the writer of Hebrews says this, and he's drawing a, a line in the sand because there are those that are Hebrew, right? There are those that want to hold on to the law, want to hold on to the previous processes, want to hold on to the high priests and the sacrifices. And so he's clarifying what changed under Christ. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Now, the writer of Hebrews is speaking about the sacrifices that would happen on the Day of Atonement, the other sacrifices that would happen throughout the year, uh, under the high priest, at the temple, and so forth and so on. That was the process of ceremony that you could participate in to demonstrate your repentance and it required something of you. It required that you would give towards that. You would participate in that. But Jesus was saying, I'm going to perfect that. It is imperfect. It requires constant death. Constant death. And even though those sacrifices are made, they are not good enough, so you're going to have to do it again and you're going to have to do it again, and you're going to have to do it again. And this is what the writer of Hebrews is trying to clarify. What is highlighted? Having once been cleansed. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sins. This writer goes to great lengths to prove and to communicate, and we'll look at it again in a little bit, that through Jesus, only one sacrifice was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. So that is why, in some of the things that I have studied, and I have heard even from the Catholic viewpoint, that when we look at that, in some of their dogma, the actual wording is continual sacrifice, that that does not align with even what Christ was saying. So let's move on. Hebrews 9.25, this is the passage I was talking about. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly. So, the idea of Jesus having to be continually sacrificed. Now, I heard today the person of authority saying, no, we do not believe in the Catholic Church that we are continually sacrificing Christ. And yet, I heard from another authority that yes, it is in their dogma that this is happening. So there's some confusion that I can't really explain. But what I do know is what this says. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly. Right? For then He would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, 
He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin. Therefore, one of the things that we can glean from this idea is that when we go and we participate in the Lord's table, this is not cleansing us from our what? Our sin. So be not confused. Point of clarity. Right? This do in remembrance of me. What is the Lord's table or communion? Well, Jesus said it's finished. So he doesn't need to be re-sacrificed. There doesn't need to be another sacrifice. The work was completed. Got that? Next, Paul only and ever speaks to the one act on the cross as worthy. You never see Paul say that there is a necessity for the redemption of sins that we continually through an organized ceremony practice repentance over and over and over again in order that Christ may forgive us over and over and over again by sacrificing over and over. He talks about one sacrifice, and that was accomplished where? On the cross. So we have no reference of this by Paul himself, who gives instruction on the Lord's table. The new covenant speaks to the replacement of the old covenant, which was observed through what? Symbolism. Now, I'm going to... You can say this honestly, all right? I already passed one test. I got a B. I always look at that as an A, so there you go. <laughs> I always told mom that a B is as good as an A. Uh, you feel free to say if, if I'm off, but do you see the transference of Christ using symbolism connected to the Passover meal? Or do you think I'm really reaching on this one? Remember, he's speaking to Jews who for millennia, have observed the Passover meal. And the significance of those symbols. And so the process, the methodology doesn't change. He chooses the same methodology because it has effect, it has purpose, it has intent, and it feeds us. But what those symbols symbolize, the significance of those symbols in the New Covenant have changed. He promises what? Jesus in John 14 to His disciples say, I am going to leave you. And they start whining really bad. Go read it. If you need drama in your life, just read the Gospels. And so He says, but I will send you another who will be your comforter, who will be your counselor, who will guide you. My question, and I posed it the first week that I talked about this is, what is it that we need to do in order to speak to a continual process of Christ being involved with us when He's given us the Holy Spirit? Right? If this makes sense, that Jesus says, I'm leaving you, but I'm giving you another part of Me. When you observe the Lord's table, you'll have Me in a very physical and real sense um, over and over as long as you practice this. That, that, that does not exist. Instead, what we see is, I'm leaving you because I need to, because the will of the Father says I will be glorified with Him, I will sit at His right hand, and I will intercede for you, but I am going to send another. And He will be interacting with you. And so I see this as a majorly problematic that we would need to have some kind of metaphysical reaction or process with Jesus Himself when He has said, I am giving you the Holy Spirit, but I am going 
to be glorified in heaven. Remembrance and proclaim. That's the last point. We'll finish there today. Remembrance and proclaim. What is the Lord's name? We are remembering and we are proclaiming Him. That's straight out of Scripture. We'll get to it in a minute. When should we participate in the Lord's table and communion? Any ideas? This is where I get to give you a grade. Any thoughts? The beginning of the week. When we what? When we meet together. What else? Any other thoughts? Anytime you want. So you don't need a pastor there to administer it to you? Okay, there are a lot of thoughts on this subject. And I'm glad I asked your opinions because maybe there's some clarity that needs to happen. All right? How do we even answer this? Jesus didn't say. He said, for as often. Actually, Paul says, for as often. Jesus wasn't super clear. He didn't explicitly say, observe this like you observe the Passover meal as often on the same schedule as the Passover meal. He just says He's replacing that covenant. The early church did meet on the first day of the week, as, as my brother said, and they observed this meal on the first day of the week. That doesn't mean that it was a command to do so. They also met in houses, so are we breaking that rule because we're not in a house? If so, we're all going to Gary's. You need to move a few chairs. All right. Uh, the whole idea that you can do this on your own is one I get a little, a little worried about. This is not from the Lord. This is from me. All right, you hear who I'm ripping that off from, right? Paul. Is that the danger in that is that we live in a time where people want to be maverick Christians. I don't want to go to the church because the church burned me. I don't need to be under church leadership because I don't respect church leadership. I don't want to be, you know, all these excuses, right? And so they become maverick Christians that are just by themselves. And so they observe on their own. The one thing we do know is that this meal was always done, what do we call it? We call it the Lord's table and we call it communion. From the same word as community. This was always observed in community. So there's some things there I don't have time to get into and explore that we need to be mindful of when we talk about when should we participate. Let me clarify that there isn't any specific like you should do it on the first. How many of you were the first Sunday of the monthers? I was growing up. Any of you else? How many of you were once a year? You know, your tradition was once a year we did it. How many of you like, it was never observed when I was growing up in our church. We never did it. Anybody like that? Good, because we were going to have a, uh, we were going to call our elders and exercise the demons of <laughs> ill repute. No. Um, if you're new, that was my spiritual gift of sarcasm. Um, how many of you, uh, again, grew up, it, it may not have been the first, you, you may have done it every Sunday. Okay. We've made the choice to move to every Sunday because of where we started with the sermon. That we truly want 
each of you to, what's one of the key things we value? Engage. We want you to engage with the value of remembering and proclaiming because we see the spiritual benefits to it. And part of the problem that, and part of the criticism that comes up is that, well, then it can just become routine, right? If we do it every week, it can just become routine. Let me help you because that's me. And in my own personal journey, going back about eight months ago, wrestling with this, I said, all right, that's how I feel. Let's talk about what the Lord expects. And through that journey and examining that question, I had to ask myself, then is prayer too routine? So I should only do it. How about reading the Scriptures? Should I only do it then once a month? For some of us, we're like, yes. (laughs) Then I'd feel good about myself. What about you know, practicing these other elements that give us relationship with the Lord? And so I came up against that argument that I had for myself, and it started to crumble away as a good, solid foundation. Now let me say this. For those that practice once a month, I have got... You'll never hear me be critical of that. That's their choice in their tradition And if that feeds them, then fantastic. If it draws them away from the Lord, I can't imagine why that would happen, but if it were in fact to draw them away from the Lord to participate every Sunday, I want you to hear me clearly. Stay in your seat. If the tradition is such a heavy crucible around your neck that it becomes so hard and you cannot engage with the Lord by participating every Sunday, stay in your seat. That's one of the reasons that we we have an open time to come forward is that nobody's really looking at who's moving, who's not moving, who's what. It, it kind of fosters an environment that if spiritually you're not ready to go, if, if traditionally it's too much of a rub, whatever that would be, God gives grace. All right? This is the statement by the Free Church. It's the EFCA doctrinal statement. The Lord mandated two ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, which visibly and tangibly express the Gospel. Though they are not the means of salvation, when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer. That is the official statement of the Evangelical Free Church. Hopefully, because we record all this information, everything I have said up to this point is in alignment with that, or I will have to surrender my credentials. When should we participate again? There's no stated requirement. There's no stated requirement. So currently, we are choosing to do this on a weekly basis for the purpose of giving opportunity for spiritual engagement and nourishment. Okay? The early church probably observed each week, right? Philip gave us that information. We look at the idea of the history of the Passover. So some observe quarterly, some observe yearly using that tradition of the Passover. Um, Here's the key point. When our hearts are open and ready to partake, that's when we should participate. You see what we did there? We took it out of categories. We took it out of a stoic uh, uh, outlook organizer off the holiday calendar, and we made it personal. Really, that should be how we ask that question. When should we partake? 
when our hearts are open and ready to partake. That's when we should do that. Open versus closed communion. I told you we'd get here at the end. Here we are. By the way, when our hearts are open and ready to partake assumes this, that you have faith in Jesus Christ. This observance is between those, just think of a marriage relationship, okay? That that, that marriage relationship, there's an intimacy there, and that that should be protected from others trying to participate in that relationship. Does that make sense? So, that's part of it. The other part is, when I have not taken seriously my walk with the Lord, and I have opened myself actively to sin and sinful choices, I should be very careful not to profane Paul's words, the bread and the cup, or the sacrifice of Christ. So as we observe, as the music starts to play and we give you opportunity to come forward, you can either come forward and then go back with the, with the elements and sit and spend time in confession, and getting your heart right with the Lord, or you can do that before you come up and get the elements. Is that clear? Because it's a very important part that we do not profane. Paul talks about a consequence to doing that. So what is the difference between open and closed communion? Well, historically, there are denominations that have what's called closed communion. This is mostly stemmed out of the idea that when you observe the Eucharist or you observe communion or the Lord's table, that there are deeper properties, significance to doing this. Therefore, if someone that we are unfamiliar with, that we have no idea if they are part of the family of God, and we can't, you know, the, the, the ceremony of what we do for church does not allow for me to interview each person that walks through the door on any given Sunday. We basically have what's called a closed communion. And that will be stipulated at the front side. And the church did that early on in the history of the church. Here's part of the challenge. And I, this sounds like a rational thing to do. Here's part of the challenge with that is that you can abuse that power. And you can use it against people. And unless you satisfy the pastor, the priest, the deacon, whoever it would be oversighting that, you are denied communion. Well, when communion in certain denominations has a much more powerful and I think erroneous approach, you are denying people to a certain level an extension of their salvation. So do you see the dangers in that? Now there are also some good ideas about closed communion because if you take this seriously, I mentioned that Paul says at the end of chapter 11, or the end of this section in chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, that he says there's a consequence. Some of you are sick and weak because you profane. So can you see as a shepherd that you would want to keep your people from experiencing that? So that, that, there's the history behind closed. We do not practice closed. We practice open. And the reason we do that is because we see that the Lord in His extension of offering salvation to each individual, He does so in an open process. 
While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for the ungodly. That He gives us the open chance to make decisions whether to follow Him or not to follow Him. And this is an extension of the idea that each of us are responsible for our own spiritual and moral choices. Does that make sense? Therefore, if someone were to walk through the door, we need to do our due diligence in explaining that this is for the believer. But once we have then stipulated that, that is then up to you to make sure if you participate, you know Jesus would say you're a believer and follower of Him. And so we trust that the participants here worshiping today know that and live by that. And so that's why we practice open communion is that we turn that over to the individual as a freestanding moral agent to make that decision and be accountable to the Lord as a person. And I think that fits with our whole approach to salvation, does it not? I can't bring you into the faith. I can shepherd you, I can encourage you, I can teach you, but you and you alone, through God's grace, are responsible for your spiritual walk. Therefore, we see that model and we see that instituted by Christ and we, we follow that. In wrapping up, we see that where we started this morning where I was reading out of Luke 22, he says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. The question is, why should we participate in the Lord's communion? Because Jesus goes on to say, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in what? Remembrance. The number one thing to know about why is because He's asked us to. Not in a passive tone, but as a command. Do this. And how are we supposed to do this? To interact with Him? This is why we hold to the memorial view, folks. In remembrance of Me. Christ wants us to remember the gift of grace that came at such a great cost. Is that worthwhile? Absolutely. There's spiritual nourishment when we participate. Without a doubt, there's spiritual nourishment when we participate. It helps us be aligned with Jesus' command that we remember and proclaim. To proclaim His death and resurrection. This is what Paul tells us in the 1 Corinthians 11 passage. That as long as we do this, we what? We proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So there's the second element of why we do this. Number one, we do it to remember. Number two, we do it to proclaim. We remember the grace and blessing afforded to us through the new covenant. And so here's the part that I just want to finish with today. Do this in remembrance of me and proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. I can leave you with no greater understanding than when we first engaged on this level about 40 minutes ago, that there is such a beauty and spiritual nourishment and the desire to sense Christ in our life that this participation fosters 
that opportunity done correctly. It fosters that opportunity. I can think of no greater desire than a pastor or a shepherd for his people or his sheep than to see them grow and be thriving spiritually and in love with Christ. This is why we have chosen to do this week in, week out. Let me close in prayer from our message this morning. And I encourage you, take this information, prayerfully examine it, Look in your own life. And the first thing we should do is say, do we truly proclaim Christ? And if there's any vacillation to that level, I encourage you, seek Him. He promises if you seek Him, you will what? You will find Him. Come into that relationship of faith and grace with Him and then come to the Lord's table. And for those that already have, come in celebration, but come in a worthy manner so that you may be spiritually nourished today. Let me pray over you. Father, as we hear these words and the clarity of, of hopefully the clarity of what this command is and this ceremony is, that the teaching is solid, but the participation becomes so important, so valuable, so rewarding. Let these words go to our spirit, our soul, our heart and draw us closer to You, Lord. To You be all glory. Amen. Amen.